Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Today is a very special episode. While today is the 4th of June, in two days it will be the 6th of June, and on the 6th of June is the 75th anniversary of D-Day. The largest combined operation in the history of the world took place. That is D-Day. And D-Day, of course, was the pivotal landing in Northwest Europe. It was part of a large sort of multi-allied descent upon Germany. It was crucial to cracking the Atlantic Wall, and it played a very important part, of course, in the conclusion of the war. And of course, during D-Day, the Canadians had one of the five beaches to take. So Canada, in fact, played a very important role in this very important operation. Uh, one beach for the Canadians, two for the Americans, two for the British. And so for today's special episode commemorating the 75th anniversary, uh, I have actually brought on a guest for the first time in our podcast history, and this is Alex Fitzgerald Black from the Juno Beach Center. He is a Canadian military historian who currently works for the JBC um, on a variety of things he'll talk about in the interview. And Alex was going to give us a rundown of D-Day, some of the historical understandings of D-Day, perhaps some of the new historical understandings of D-Day that many people, many of our listeners might not fully understand or know about. And he'll talk a bit about the Juno Beach Center. So here you go, folks. I hope you enjoy this interview format with Alex Fitzgerald Black of the Juno Beach Center. Thanks, Alex. We really appreciate you coming on today and talking to us about D-Day. So I think the first, uh, I mean, real question to ask is, you know, what was D-Day? You know, what was its significance for the war effort, this sort of momentous uh, event, this momentous operation? Maybe you could explain that for our listeners. So D-Day was the common term for the Allied landings in Normandy, France on June 6, 1944, uh, in the middle of the Second World War, or close to the end, actually. D-Day itself is a generic term for the launch date of military operations, and so it's used as a placeholder. So instead of saying June 5th, you would say D-Day. And it's also quite handy when the date of an, of an operation is moved, as occurred um, on June 5th and 6th. The original day for the landings was scheduled to be June 5th, 
Mm. Weather forecast got in the way of that. It was uh, postponed 24 hours to the 6th. And so you can continue to say D-Day without referencing the day. It also helps, I guess, in terms of um, keeping communication secret. You know, if mm. someone comes across the term D-Day, they're not going to know what day you're talking about. They're just going to know it's D-Day. There's some groups out there that are, you know, I've seen even the Canadian Army on Facebook. They were posting, a, they're doing a nice quiz uh, the last month or so. And one of the answers, the, the correct answer they said was it's it stands for, um, like, the D stands for, um, I think, day in D-Day. And I was like, well, no, it's it doesn't actually stand for anything. It's just literally a placeholder. Yeah, I've heard uh, some people say uh, departure day as well. Yeah, I, yeah. No, it, and it's and it's literally, and you know, any military operation, Operation Husky, there was a D-Day for Operation Husky right, in, the, right, in right. Sicily in 1943 as well. So D-Day in 1944 on, in Normandy was hugely significant for the Allied war effort. Defeating Nazi Germany could not occur, um, or at least it could not be left to the Soviets in the East, nor could it be accomplished through bombing or peripheral approaches through the Mediterranean. So the Allies had to liberate Western Europe and ultimately defeat the German armed forces, defending one of the worst regimes in history. So success on D-Day and in holding the bridgehead, and that is perhaps even more critical than D-Day, June 6th itself, meant the Allies gained time and space to feel the force that could accomplish this. And so it's appropriate when we refer to the day as being the beginning of the end, I use air quotes there, of the Mm -hmm. war in Europe, or the beginning of the liberation of Northwest Europe. And I'm very specific about Northwest Europe because depending on what you think about the Italian campaign, the liberation of Europe is probably already underway in mid to late 1943. Yeah, that's actually a really good point too in, in specifying the geographical region because we do I, I think there's a common understanding that the liberation of Europe begins with D-Day when in fact you have the Italian invasion and, and you have the invasion from the east as well if you want to call the Soviet invasion a liberation uh, which was probably controversial in itself to say that but nonetheless <laughs> uh, you have certainly you have allied forces on the European continent prior to June 1944 absolutely absolutely so in terms of D-Day then what 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 was the Canadian role so the Canadian role was extensive. I was just having a talk with um, someone from CBC Radio the other day, and um, she was asking me a, a similar question: Why is this so significant in kind of Canadian history? And it's because we weren't we weren't the star of the show, but we were one of the three stars of the show, if you will, between Britain, the Americans, and Canada. And Canadians were in the vanguard of the assault. Over 500 men of the First Canadian Parachute Battalion leapt into the night in the early hours of the 6th of June to help secure the landing's eastern flank. Some 14,000 Canadians with 3rd Canadian Infantry Division Canadian Armoured Brigade landed on Juneau Beach on D-Day, supported by about half as many British troops on Juneau Beach. And so we can't forget that the British were there on Juneau Beach with us as well. Uh, there was probably uh, two Canadian troops for every one British soldier, mm. but nevertheless, they were a significant part of the force. At sea, uh, the Royal Canadian Navy crewed uh, about 31 major warships, anything from a minesweeper to a corvette or a destroyer. Um, and 46 landing craft and 17 mortar torpedo boats. This was just a small fraction of the over 6,000 vessels that participated, but it amounted to the third largest naval contribution to D-Day after Britain and the U.S. And in terms of major warships, and again I said there were 61 uh, RCN ones, the Canadian Navy actually provided more warships than the United States Navy, although Uh we didn't have anything like a battleship or a cruiser, nothing that big. The biggest thing we had was either a destroyer 
where they had um, uh, what were called the landing ship infantry, which were actually armed merchant cruisers. And so those were actually quite big, just not as heavily armed and armored. In the air, the Royal Canadian Air Force committed about 39 squadrons. And in fact, I believe it's now uh, it's 39. The Royal, Royal Canadian Air Force just released an article about this um, indicating that it's 39. Last year, they had one that said it was 37 and they listed oh. them all. So I thought that was right, but it's 39. Okay. Um, and these varied from fighter squadrons protecting the landing force to bombers attacking German coastal batteries to coastal patrol aircraft keeping a watchful eye for U-boats. And in addition to these RCAF squadrons, these Canadian squadrons, many Canadian airmen served with Imperial units. And so, for instance, on the day of the 22 Canadian airmen killed on D-Day, on June 6th, 15 served with Royal Air Force squadrons. And so uh, more than uh, almost you know, two-thirds of the number uh, who were killed, at least, served with um, Imperial squadrons. And I think it's, what's really interesting here is what, what you're getting at is just the, the extensive... Asp- the, the extensive nature of the Canadian contribution, I mean, sea, air, and land, it's not just, you know, the, the traditional view of it is soldiers land on the beaches and fight their way up, and here what you're talking about is this sort of absolutely widespread uh, uh, support network of, of, of the air and the sea that, that is required simply to get these uh, soldiers onto the beaches. It's pretty, it's pretty impressive, and I think what, what is really interesting is, you know, why the Canadians? Because, of course, you know, the U.S. and the British Army, we can understand, we can understand why they're, they're large. They have a lot of, uh, they, they have the ability to conduct these sort of large amphibious operations. But here you have, you know, in terms of a, a nation of the world, a relatively smaller nation that is playing a major role in this. So why were the Canadians chosen? So, so one reason is that the British Army was spread all across the world. This is a global war. On multiple fronts. So the Commonwealth was fighting the Germans in the Mediterranean. They were fighting the Japanese in Burma and in the Pacific. And so the Canadians in Britain supplemented a Commonwealth army that was stretched, frankly, across the globe. The Canadians, who had been bloodied at Dieppe in August 1942, were long slated to play a role in the return to Northwest Europe. The only question was, what was the specific role they were going to play? And what was the specific role that First Canadian Army, the... um, parent formation of all these Canadian um, army units, uh, what would it be its role in, you know, would, it, would its role be in leading the Commonwealth assault, or would it provide the exploitation force? And this is something um, that the planners kind of went back and forth on a bit. But the long story short was that 2nd British Army was eventually chosen as the lead formation, but one of the initial assault divis- divisions would be Canadian. And so the senior staff of the 3rd Canadian Infantry Division, which was the division selected, were informed of their participation in April 1943, so over a year before the operation um, was even executed. And these decisions had to be made this early because training needed to be completed by the end of January 1944 so that the final planning, exercises, and rehearsals for the landings could be carried out um, subsequently. Now, the Overlord plan, the, the, the Overlord be referring to um, the overall invasion or landings, uh, plus the Battle of Normandy, and then Neptune being the specific you know, plan for the landings, the naval plan, if you will. Mm-hmm. It did change because it grew from a five-beach assault in the, or a three-beach assault in the early planning to a five-beach assault in early 1944. Mm-hmm. And so when this happened, 3rd Canadian Infantry Division was transferred to 1st British Corps, for the landings. Interestingly, the Royal Canadian Air Force overseas actually got to kind of decide for itself, without reference to Ottawa, 
as to whether its fighter squadrons were to support the Anglo-Canadian landings. Basically, the, the Canadian fighters were concentrated in what was 83 Group uh, Royal Air Force, and they were kind of, they were slated, 83 Group was slated to be the, the group that was going to be supporting the landings, regardless of whether it was 2nd British Army or 1st Canadian Army leading the charge. Um, and when it was switched to 2nd British Army, they were basically asked, do you want to retain you know, your status or do you want... Because the idea was to have 83 groups support 1st um, Canadian Army, because then you'd have Canadian, like it's about half to two-thirds Canadian, you'd have Canadian squadrons supporting the Canadian Army. As it right. turned out, that didn't happen because the Canadians in 83 groups said, no, we're not going to miss this for the world. Mm. We're going to support 2nd British Army. Just because the 1st Canadian Army isn't leading the charge on, on, on day one doesn't mean that we shouldn't. So that's a really neat little story. Mm. That is very <laughs> fascinating. I, 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 I actually never heard that before. That's really interesting. Uh, was there a significance to Juno Beach itself as opposed to the other beaches or, or the Juno Beach area in general? So there's kind of two answers to that. The, the first answer, um, well, they both revolve around this. It was important that the Allies land a large force on D-Day, and that's why they moved from three uh, to five landing beaches, in order to have both the strength to pierce the Atlantic Wall and to defend against German counterattacks that the Allies knew were coming. Uh, they'd experienced this in, in, uh, um, in Italy, uh, well, in Sicily, and then in mainland Italy, and so they knew that was what the Germans were going to do. They were going to try to stop them at the beach, but when they couldn't, they were going to launch counterattacks. Juno Beach was significant because it linked two British beaches, so gold in the west and sword in the east. British forces in the west, um, or sorry, in the east were to take Caen, while those in the west would take Bayeux, and those were two key kind of logistical centers, uh, larger towns and cities, um, really, mm -hmm. in Normandy. And so can Canadians in the, you know, old literature were to provide the connective tissue that linked these forces. But it goes beyond that. Um, Professor Mark Milner, who you know very well, author mm -hmm. of Stopping the Panzers, has made a compelling case that the very ground that the Canadians were tasked with securing was crucial to the success of the entire Overlord plan. The ultimate purpose of the Canadian assault was to secure the ground the Allied planners correctly believed the Germans would use to mass their panzer forces and strike at the beachhead. And that's critical because it's, it's not going to be... The units on the crust, on the coast, those are static divisions, generally not of the best fighting quality. Where the German army's strength really lays is it lies, is in mobile forces, you know, Panzer divisions, uh, Panzer mm -hmm. Grenadier divisions that can move quickly on the battlefield, and really, you know, use kind of shock action uh, to penetrate the enemy line and push the Allies back into the sea. And so those are the units that were really that the, the Allied planners, frankly, were really concerned about. And so this is why, as Milner has uncovered, the Canadians landed as the most powerful Allied formation on D-Day. They had more than 300 artillery and anti-tank weapons and almost 8,000 gunners, in addition to the presence of 2nd Canadian Armoured Brigade. And so, as uh, Milner's thesis is, is their job was literally to stop the Panzers. They were, you know, trained to do this and they were um, equipped to do this. I think that is, I'm glad you brought that up because to, to me that is one of the most fascinating recent historical or academic discoveries in terms of the Canadian experience uh, in Normandy is this idea that the Canadians were being prepped to meet the thrust of the of the of the German counterattack and I think that is a, a, a incredible 
component of the Canadian objective, so or the Canadian plan. And so if we're talking about the Canadian plan, then what, what were the general objectives besides sort of becoming this sort of hammer blow or this sort of anvil that's going to mm-hmm. stop the attack of, 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 the, of, the, of the Germans? What, what were the objectives otherwise? So generally speaking, every Allied division that landed on D-Day had objectives to take and, crucially, to hold against an expected German counterattack. The Canadians' job specifically was to get to the Caen-Bayeux highway and rail line and hold it. This was known as the Oak Line. Uh, that's what the, the code name was for this uh, series of positions. Um, and when they got there, they were going to set up basically fortress defense positions and, and be ready for that counterattack. So although they advanced the furthest inland on June 6th, they didn't actually make it to all of their objectives. And there are a couple of reasons for this. First, there was congestion on the beaches and through coastal towns like Bernier-sur-Mer in particular, where the reserve forces mm-hmm. landed. And so there were limited exits for troops and vehicles to get off the beach and through the town. Secondly, a German counterattack, um, again in this, in this area, uh, by 21st uh, Panzer Division, which had been in, in or just around Caen um, on the day, had split Juneau Beach and Sword Beach to the east. And so this prompted the British overall commander, 2nd um, Army Lieutenant General Sir Miles Dempsey, to order the Canadians to dig in at Elm, which was the code for their intermediate objective. So this was a good decision, as any further advance probably would have made the troops vulnerable to German forces massing in the Caen area, because in the next day, you also have 12th SS uh, Panzer Division you know, arriving um, at the front in pieces. Ultimately, however, about half of the Oak Line was secured on the 7th, or D plus 1, and on that same day, Canadian troops advancing to the other half of Oak, this is uh, to the east towards Caen, met a large German counterattack, as was expected. Although the Germans pushed the Canadians back from their extended advance, the attack did not get anywhere close to throwing the Allies back into the sea, as the Germans had planned. On June 8th and 9th, the villages of Puteau en bessin and bretville logigluse became fierce battlegrounds, and this is in the west. Um, although the 12th SS Panzer Division, supported in parts of this um, three-day battle by elements of other Panzer Divisions, managed to overrun the Royal Winnipeg Rifles at Puteau, a swift counterattack by the Canadian Scottish Regiment resp- restored the line there, and at Bretville, the Regina Rifle Regiment held its ground, fighting in one of the most impressive small unit actions of the entire campaign. So by the end of it, the Germans hadn't even secured the start line they needed to destroy the Allied landings. But the cost to Canada was high. The Canadians lost some 3,000 men killed, wounded, and missing between the 6th and the 10th of June, 1944. Okay, so do you think that the story of the Canadians' uh, uh, attempts at their objectives have led in some way to a misunderstanding of the Canadian or Anglo-Canadian role on D-Day? Yes, I, I, I think so, and I think... Um, Mark Milner has shown this uh, quite conclusively in his book. Um, Until recently, the literature on this topic has accepted that the Anglo-Canadians missed an opportunity to take Caen on D-Day. And the city was one of General Bernard Montgomery's objectives for that day, and it didn't fall until nearly one month later. At the center of this critique are the phase lines that Montgomery included in his forecast of operations, which um, U.S. General Omar Bradley suggested he leave out due to fears that they would set false expectations, and and that's kind of exactly what happened. The advance was assumed to move forward at a relatively brisk pace over the next few weeks, and I say relatively because it would still be relatively slow and methodical, but it would be a, a, a fairly continuous advance. 
Um, this didn't happen. Uh, and therefore, for some historians, the Anglo-Canadians missed a huge opportunity on D-Day. But while Montgomery and his commanders were willing to take risks on D-Day, they kind of wanted to gobble up as much territory as they could you know, while the Germans were in disarray, they also understood that securing a foothold on the continent was more important. I believe that as Allied intelligence began reporting the presence of 21st Panzer Division in the Caen area in May, the emphasis shifted to the latter, to, to securing that bridgehead. This also sets the stage for the failure-to-move-forward paradigm that tends to dominate the narrative in Normandy, or at least it did until more recently. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, why, in your opinion, then, is the 75th anniversary of this, in, uh, this event a particularly important one? So I think it's an important anniversary uh, for a few reasons. First, it's going to be one of the last major anniversaries where we still have a living memory of what happened that day. Even the youngest of the veterans are now in their mid-90s. Uh, there's one or two that are you know, in their early 90s, but not one or two, but there's definitely one that's uh, 90 years old, but he was 15 and he was um, a, uh, a galley boy on one of the merchant uh, Navy vessels on D-Day. Wow. Their numbers continue to dwindle each year, and so it's special that dozens of veterans, dozens of Canadian veterans, will be visiting Juneau Beach for this anniversary. And in, um, in British terms, that they're obviously the UK is much closer uh, to Normandy. They're just a, a, a quick ride across the channel away. Um, I believe they're going to have some 300 veterans um, ferried across on uh, June over the night of June 5th. Um, uh, and I think Donald Trump and Theresa May are going to be with them to see them off, at least. Uh, and I think um, Macron from from uh, France as well will be there to either greet them or, or send them off. Uh, and so we're not going to have this sort of this sort of um, veteran presence again. I, I don't think, at least not for uh, an anniversary that's divisible by a five, mm-hmm. um, seventy. You know, in, when we get to eighty in um, in five years from now, it's you know these veterans are going to be pushing into their, you know, late nineties and some of them will be in the hundreds and, and that makes things even more difficult uh, for travel. Mm-hmm. There's also currently a bid underway to get the D-Day beaches added to the list of UN world heritage sites. Um, this highlights the fact that D-Day was an international event and one that reverberated across Europe and continues to shape our world today. Um, it won't be added to the UN list this year. There was recently an argu- article um, that was kind of going uh, wild uh, about that. But hopefully these commemorations help with that process and kind of show um, either the, both the UN and the rest of the world that, you know, there's a part of the world that cares very deeply um, about what happened uh, on June 6, 1944. How do you think... D-Day then sits in the Canadian historical understanding of the Second World War? I think it's a moment that rivals, um, but doesn't yet seem to eclipse what Vimy Ridge is to Canadians for the First World War. Um, Vimy is a lot of things to a lot of people. 
Uh, to me, the best thing about Vimy is that it offers us a gateway into understanding the broader Canadian First World War experience. Um, I think D-Day has the potential and, and often does the same thing. And in fact, that's what the Juno, that's the approach the Juno Beach Centre takes. Its exhibitions are about the entirety of Canada's Second World War experience and also about uh, Canada-Canadian identity, um, and not just what happened on June 6, 1944. D-Day in Normandy would not have been possible without Canada's industrial and agricultural contributions, the Navy and Air Force's efforts to secure sea links um, to Britain in the Battle of the Atlantic were critical to ensuring that those supplies and those men and, and, and everything could get there, and the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan, which provided the Commonwealth Air Forces, or forces Commonwealth Air Forces across the world with airmen, um, also played, played a huge uh, effort. You know, there's so many different things we could point to. And D-Day is one of uh, is where most of these efforts came together at one crucial point um, to, to to defeat Nazi Germany. Are there aspects of D-Day you think are lesser known that need to be explored or expanded upon? So personally, I think we tend to neglect the role the Air Force played. There's a, there's a lot of flaws with the ability of the Air Force to actually um, deliver decisive action on the battlefield in this period of history. Nevertheless, um, thousands of airmen served in this campaign. In fact, before D-Day even occurred um, in the campaign to kind of, quote-unquote, soften up um, France and Germany and Belgium, you know, for, for the D-Day operation, um, something like 12,000 uh, Allied airmen were either killed or missing um, mm. during that campaign that kind of lasted, you know, depending on, I think it's, uh, that figure's kind of for three months or so. Um, so, it's a, so, it's, so it's a big effort even before D-Day starts. Um, and we tend to use the figure 359 Canadians died on D-Day. Um, that's the widely accepted figure. It's the figure that's in C.P. Stacey's History of the Canadian Army. But that means that it's all about what the Army did, and it's all about the Army's casualties. There were 359 Canadians, Canadian soldiers who died on D-Day, but there were almost two dozen Canadian airmen who also gave their lives on that day, and I alluded to that earlier. And so when you add these up, it's actually closer to 381 um, Canadians who died on the day. And we tend to we tend to just miss that. We kind of just gloss over, you know, not necessarily intentionally, but that's just 359 is the number. Um, and then we do hear all these stories about what the Air Force was doing, but we don't connect that with um, the casualties. Related to that, I think historians are coming to a better understanding of what the experience was like for Normans, um, and, and generally the French people who endured the assault. The aerial bombardment at Juneau Beach killed approximately 100 French civilians. Um, mm. A thousand more had already been killed, or were to die as the battle for France continued. Uh, there is, you know, if you know, if we're going to talk about the 381 Canadians. Um, who died supporting, you know, D-Day and the effort at Juneau Beach. Maybe we should also be talking about the 100, 100 French civilians who died on that beach or near it. Um, I also think we need to remember, and I've said this before, so maybe I'll edit this part out, that's fine. Um, the one th That one-third of the men who landed on Juneau Beach were British. They were part of that added firepower required to get ashore and to stop the counterattacks. 
and they also provided specialized equipment for crossing the beaches and engineers to clear obstacles and sweep mines. So there's a lot of effort there that we don't always uh, remember, you know, in Canada. To be fair, it's not like the British and the Americans do a great job often at remembering what Canadians did. Um, but but that doesn't mean we shouldn't. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean we should return the favor. I think we should actually uh, honor those British troops uh, that fell um, on the beach as well. So it, what's interesting then is is there's so much more to really be uncovered and, and especially for the common Canadian uh, to learn about D-Day. And I guess this is a good segue into the Juneau Beach Centre. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Juneau Beach Centre? So the Juneau Beach Centre is Canada's second World War Museum in Normandy, France. The museum opened in 2003, just a year before, um, I guess it was the 60th anniversary at the time, um, and it was thanks to the vision of Canadian D-Day veteran Garth Webb and the support of thousands of Canadians who donated funds for the centre over nearly a decade. Um, Garth's vision spawned from his visit to Juneau Beach for the 50th anniversary back in 1944. And when he was there with a group of, um, I think it was a, a number of his buddies from the, uh, the 14th Field Regiment, there were plenty of regimental monuments, um, and there was obviously the Canadian cemeteries, the one at uh, Benny sur mer and the, there's another one south of Caen at um, Bretteville-sur-Lez. Uh, but there was nothing to tell Canada's story in great detail. Today, close to a million visitors from all over the world have visited the centre. Um, actually, it's over a million visitors as of last year. Um, oh, fantastic. And this stands as both a memorial and a site of education for understanding Canada's participation in the Second World War. It's kind of like an embassy for Canada on Juneau Beach. What is your role at the Juneau Beach Centre? So for the past year, I've held the position of Digital Projects Coordinator for the Juneau Beach Centre Association, and the association is a Canadian nonprofit which owns and operates the centre on Juneau Beach, and we're based here in Canada. Broadly speaking, my role has been to support a variety of Juno 75, and that's the hashtag we've been using, hashtag Juno 75, projects we have on the go. So for instance, I host our podcast, it's called Juno Beach and Beyond, and that's to my knowledge the only podcast dedicated to Canada in the Second World War. I have also helped with exhibit development at the centre, and I'm busy right now attending a variety of events here in Canada to commemorate the 75th anniversary of D-Day and Canada's role at Juno Beach. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Juno Beach Centre is doing for the 75th, what some of the major events are, and maybe let our listeners know where they can uh, find more information on it. Absolutely. There's so much happening. Um, if they want to go to www.juno75.ca, that's where all of our Juno 75 projects live. Um, so the centre itself will be the site of the signature Canadian ceremony at Juno Beach on the 6th of June. And in the evening, the international ceremony will also take place on the same site. And again, like I said earlier, this year we're going to have dozens of veterans, um, both with an official contingent and some unofficial contingents, and there will be thousands of attendees um, at the site. Um, we've also, a number of the campaigns I'd like to highlight is um, Juno postcards, for instance. We've sent out, what we did was we looked at kind of that same period we were talking about earlier, the 6th to the 10th and the Canadian fatalities, and we went through their service files and tried to figure out the ones that we actually had a good address for that still existed, and we came up with about 400 addresses that we could send postcards to, and so uh, you might have seen that in the in the media yeah. recently. Uh, people have been getting those postcards, you know, identifying, you know, um, 
you know, uh, so-and-so from, um, you know, uh, Vancouver, BC lived in this house before he signed up to go overseas and he was killed on June 6th on Juneau Beach. We also have um, what's called Canada's Commemorative Campaign, which is a, it's a fundraiser um, built around dog tags or identity discs. And so the idea is um, we're providing uh, donors with um, a dog tag that they can either customize to, to commemorate someone um, who they're close to, who might have a relationship with Juno Beach, might not. Um, and then uh, if you don't have someone in particular, that's gr- that's fine because we actually have a list of names that we're, we've been selecting from uh, to add that. And so you can commemorate um, a Canadian uh, serviceman who died in Normandy uh, that way. And there were about 5,500 Canadian servicemen who died in Normandy. Um, we also have another project called the Legacy of Honor, and that's a series of videos that we're going to be releasing. We're releasing them literally right now, um, because as as we talked about earlier, this is the 75th anniversary, and very very soon the living memory of this event is going to fade. And so, what we're trying to do, and there's a number of organizations that are doing this, but we're one of them, is create videos of veterans so that they can tell their story, and also that they can kind of leave a message of, you know, what should we remember going forward when they're gone? And so that's, that's been a big, uh, a big focus for us as well. Um, we're also taking the approach that D-Day was just the beginning of the end. Um, our commemorative and educational efforts will continue leading up to the 75th anniversary of the end of the war in Europe in May 2020. And I encourage everyone to visit Juno75.ca to get more information about this extensive list of projects. A reminder, you can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, and at our homepage, www.coolcanadianhistory.com. You can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. And I want to thank you all for listening. For Cool Canadian History, I'm David Boris. Until next time, stay cool. Stay cool.